Well, it's everyone's favorite time of the week. It's time for the Parsha podcast for Parshas Kedoshim. Coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, this is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. This is the Parsha podcast, everyone's weekly highlight. Now, before we begin, I would like to let the audience know that the Musser Masterclass is coming back. Musser Masterclass 1.2, you remember a couple of months ago, we had a 10-week series on TorchZoom.com, live in the Torch Center for those of you who are local. It was a smashing success, and we're doing it again. So this is going to be starting next week, so Monday night, the upcoming Monday night, May 9th. It's going to start at 7.30 Central Time. It's going to be available on TorchZoom.com. If you would like to join, you can just put in your calendar at 7.30 Central for eight Mondays upcoming. It's really going to be nine Mondays because there's going to be one of those Mondays is Shavuos, so that week will skip. But nine Mondays in a row, not including Shavuos, we're going to have the Muslim Masterclass on Torch Zoom at 7.30 Central, so if you're in the Eastern Seaboard, Eastern Time, it's 8.30, etc. You guys can figure this out. Some of the topics that are going to be covered in Musser Masterclass 1.2 are Imuna and kindness and love and patience and willpower and aggression and anger, how to overcome those things. If you would like to join, you could just join on Torch Zoom. If you want to get the associated materials and get the emails, go to our website, torchweb.org. There's going to be a link in the description and sign up and join the Musser Masterclass. So that's the first thing I wanted to tell you before we begin. The second thing I want to tell you is that last week I uh, said on the podcast that I'm considering doing an audiobook for my new book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp. And I got fantastic feedback about that. And my friend Josh sent me a text with thoroughly well-argued and well-reasoned reasons and arguments why I should do it. And he actually convinced me. So please, God, we're going to be recording the audiobook version of Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp. It also helps that Josh made a very nice donation to nudge me past the finish line. And in fact, if you would like to contribute towards any of the Torch projects or towards the book, you know, if you're writing a book, you hope to sell the book. And if you're writing, I don't know, romance novels or something like that, there's a huge audience for it. If you're writing a Torah book, it's a really small audience. It's a real niche audience. And it's just as hard to write. It's probably even a lot harder and just as difficult to, to publish and to go through all those hoops to get it actually done. And the immense costs are not going to be covered, not going to be offset by the sales. So the way this typically happens is that people make their dedications. If you look at the, you know, the first couple of pages, of a Torah book, it's very likely you'll see, you know, it's sponsored by this family in honor of this person, etc. That helps cover the costs. You know, actually, I, I regret, I regret not reaching out to the Parsha podcast family 
to see if people want to sponsor the book. Next book, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm going to reach out. But I'm still accepting – we're still accepting dedications. If you want to help contribute towards the audiobook, reach out. RabbiWalby at gmail.com upon a 10-stringed harp from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. It's the Parsha Podcast, everyone's weekly highlight. So let's begin. Our Parsha begins with an astonishing first verse. It's a really short Parsha. Only 64 verses. But it covers all kinds of mitzvos in all areas of Jewish life. But the first verse is utterly astonishing. Daber al-kol adas ben Yisrael. Speak to the entire congregation of the children of Israel. V'martaliem. And you should say to them, listen to this, Kedoshim tiyu. You should be holy. Speak to the Jewish people, gather everyone together, and tell them, you should be holy. Ki kadosh ani Hashem alokechem. Because I, i.e. God, I, Hashem your God, am holy. Moshe, gather the nation and exhort them to become holy. Why? Because the Almighty is holy. The Almighty is expecting incredible things from us. He wants us to emulate him. And we're told that we must, of course, to a certain extent, we must become holy. How holy? Or in what way are we supposed to become holy? Just like God is holy. We have to resemble God. We have to become holy because God is holy. What a stunning verse. Now, there's a really interesting Rashi on this verse. Rashi notes that typically... When God tells Moshe to gather the Jewish people, it says, speak to the children of Israel. But here there are a few extra words in the verse. Daber el kol adat b'nei Israel doesn't say, speak to the children of Israel. It says, speak to the entire congregation of the children of Israel. So why are there these extra words? Rashi's question. Says Rashi, Melami, this teaches us that this parsha, our parsha, was said behakel, with the gathering of the entire nation. Typically, it wasn't the entire nation. When Moshe spoke, he spoke, he spoke to everyone, as we shall see, but he didn't speak to everyone at once. He did it in a staggered fashion. He spoke to, some, to one group, to one cohort, and the next cohort, etc. This parsha, parsha's kedoshim, was said to the entire congregation of all of Israel, Everyone was gathered together like Hakel at gathering the whole nation. Why? Because the majority of the, of the body, of the corpus of Torah, hinges upon this parsha. This parsha wasn't just said to the children of Israel as is done typically. Everyone was gathered together in order for Moshe to share this parsha to everyone at once. Now, Rashi mentions the idea of hakel. Hakel means to gather, like a kahal, a congregation, a gathering. And the the penultimate mitzvah of the Torah, so mitzvah number 612. In total, we have 613. Mitzvah number 612, the second to last mitzvah, of course, the final mitzvah, is to write a Torah scroll. Where, you know, we end off the mitzvahs of the Torah with the instruction to have easy access to it, and therefore everyone was required to write a Torah scroll for themselves. 
But mitzvah number 612 is the mitzvah of hakel, which means together. And what this means is that every seventh year, at the end of the Shemitah, the whole nation gathers together in Jerusalem. And when we say the whole nation, we mean everyone, men, women, and children, everyone. And the king of the Jewish people reads from the Torah in a very elaborate ceremony. The sages tell us, sources tell us, that they blow with trumpets in the whole city of Jerusalem to gather everyone together. And they bring a big stage made out of wood and they place it in the temple. And the king ascends upon the stage so that way everyone can hear when he reads from the Torah. And the, the Torah scroll is passed from one person to another person to another person, progressively going to more and more important officials until finally the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, he takes the Torah scroll and he passes it to the king. And the king reads from the Torah. Says Rashi, our parsha was done like Hakel. There was a similar ceremony done with Moshe. In this parsha, everyone was present. Everyone was privy. Now, the commentaries tell us, of course, every other section of the Torah was also said to everyone, but it was said in shifts. It wasn't like, you know, A to G and then F to P and then Q to Z. And, of course, Wolby is always part of the last cohort. How come they can never start from the end and go to the beginning? That's not how it was done. Right? It was done in a, in a staggered fashion. We've gone through this in the past. But Moshe gets the instruction from God, and then he calls in Aaron, and he tells it over to Aaron. And then after he tells it to Aaron, Aaron sits to his left. And then Aaron's sons come in. And Moshe again teaches Aaron's sons. And then they too sit down, and then the elders come in. And Moshe teaches it to the elders. And then they too sit down. And finally, the rest of the nation comes in. And people could miss. There are some allowances for absences. But the whole nation hears it. But not all at once. Not all together from Moshe. Here, it's like Hakel. Everyone is together in one sitting. So here's the question. Why? Why is our Parsha different that it is said to everyone together? So Rashi, of course, tells us. Because it's inclusive of everything in Torah. The majority of the corpus of Torah is in our Parsha. So that's this Rashi, the first Rashi of our Parsha. The content of our parsha was set to everyone at once. Why? Because it's so important. It is encapsulatory. It is inclusive of the majority of the body of the corpus of Torah. But I think there are two questions that we have to ask. First of all, what does it mean that our parsha contains the majority of the corpus of the Torah? You know, our parsha, as I said in the, in the rebroadcast podcast, it contains 51 mitzvos and it has the highest mitzvah density of any parsha, but what does it mean that the majority of the corpus of the Torah is in our parsha? You know, it's fewer than 10% of the mitzvahs in the Torah are featured in our parsha. Moreover, last week we said that it's a tricky thing to assign hierarchy in the Torah. We don't say this is my favorite verse. We say you could say you have an affinity towards it, but it's not your favorite. After all, it all comes from the Almighty. So Rashi is not suggesting that these mitzvahs are more important and others are less important. You know, we don't reject any mitzvah. If you do, the Rambam says, you reject one mitzvah, 
This is not divine. You want to repudiate even one of the 613 mitzvahs, that is heresy. All the mitzvahs are important, indispensable, and cannot be disregarded. So what does it mean that our parsha contains the majority of the corpus of Torah? Question number one. Question number two is the question of why. Let's assume that our parsha, in fact, does contain the majority of the corpus of the Torah. Why do you have to have everyone together? Of course, it's important that everyone knows everything and everyone learned everything in the rest of the Torah. Why is it important to have this special ceremony? To what end, for what benefit is everyone gathered together to tell him this parsha? Why must everyone be together? What is the causal link between the fact that the majority of the laws of the corpus of the Torah are found here and therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, everyone has to be told it together. Why? What is the benefit of everyone being together in this very dramatic national ceremony? What is the reason why everyone has to be there to hear it, even if we assume, even if we accept as given that the majority of the corpus of the Torah is in our parsha? Now, I did listen to the rebroadcast podcast that is released on on Sunday, as I often do, even though I recorded it a couple of years ago, and every year I release it again as we progress to the Parsha. Sometimes I forget. I forget what the Parsha is talking about or all the details of the Parsha, what we said on the previous podcast. So I listened to the rebroadcast, as I often do, and in that episode, we actually suggested answers to these questions, but today... I want to suggest a new approach. Tell me if you like it. Do you like it? Send me an email. Do you dislike it? Also send me an email. RabbiWalbyGemma.com Here's the idea. We are not newcomers to the concept of mitzvahs. We've had, we've had many mitzvahs hitherto in the Torah. All kinds of diverse mitzvahs in all areas of life. Some of them are, are obvious mitzvahs that even today, modern societies, modern nations, countries, and states, we have these mitzvahs, like not to murder, theft, all kinds of interpersonal laws. Some of them are very challenging, you know, to keep Shabbos and to, to totally change your mode of living for a whole day out of seven days of the week. That's very challenging. We've had those kinds of mitzvahs as well. We've had mitzvahs that seem to be above human intellect, like sacrifices and the like. But I want to suggest that all the mitzvahs that we've had hitherto are all eminently and obviously doable, provided that someone is committed to doing the will of Hashem. The Almighty wants you to do something. It may be hard. It may not make so much sense to you. It may be a departure from the way you are living up until that point, but the Almighty, the Almighty is telling you, you better listen. You better listen, and it's probably it's probably good for you in the long term, because after all, the Almighty created you and has given you the precise recipe, the precise cocktail of behaviors to help you maximize your life. So the mitzvahs that we've had till now are doable. In our parsha, we are going to be introduced to a new class of mitzvahs. Mitzvos that violate, that are repelled by our inborn instincts. Mitzvos that demand 
that we overcome our default settings. Mitzvos that seem impossible to fulfill. Mitzvos that require superhuman greatness. Mitzvos that we would think are going to be limited, relegated to the really righteous. And we cannot imagine that these can be legitimately conveyed and instructed and fulfilled by the rank and file. Let's give some examples of these superhuman mitzvos. So again, a parsha begins, be holy. Be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Be holy to some degree, in some way resembling the holiness of God. What does that even mean? What does holiness even mean? So Rashi tells us, be abstinent from matters of, of sexual immorality and sin. Because any place you find a gather, you find a, a preventative fence around immorality, there you find holiness. I would say that the area that humanity, over the course of all of human history, where we struggle the most, is in these mitzvahs. Because we are, we are wired. We are created with a strong desire to, to procreate. And that's a very base level of, of instinct that we have within us. And we're told you have to make fences. You have to overcome the strongest of desires. You have to go to the opposite of our inclination. We have to completely overcome, be in total command of our animalistic desires. Become holy like God. Now remember, there's no, there's no hyperbole in the Torah. And that's the mitzvah that we begin our parsha with. And again, this is not the ways of the pious relegated to the righteous few. This is for all of Israel. We all must become saintly pious, righteous people. That is the expectation. And the law tells us that the abstinence and the holiness and the control that we have to have in this area extends even to illicit thoughts. We have to be in such total command of ourselves and our behavior that even our thoughts are not going to veer towards illicit things. Who can control their thoughts? Isn't the mind, isn't the brain like a wild, untamed stallion, totally uncontrollable? Can it really be controlled? The answer, of course, is yes. And that's the expectation of all of us, of all of you, of all of me, everyone. And this is only verse one of our Parsha. We're told that all of us, everyone, has to develop granite self-control. You have to be in total command of your faculties. You have to become holy because God is holy. You have to develop and acquire God-like holiness. And that's the expectation of everyone in the nation, not just the righteous, the pious, the ascetic, the monastic class, everyone. And that is just verse 1. There's a new class of mitzvos being revealed. Superhuman mitzvos. And there are more. Let's fast forward to verse 9. You're working, you're toiling, you're sweating on your field. 
to yield the produce. You're waking up really early, back-breaking work in the heat, and you're plowing with your donkey or your cow. Today, of course, you know, farming is all mechanized, and the farmers just sit on their massive caterpillars or John Deere tractors, and they're just watching Netflix while plowing. It's on autopilot. Back in antiquity, none of that. You're out in the sun with your with your old moody cow, and you're trying to prepare the soil for planting. And you're investing, you know, the food of today, the seeds, for the hopes of food tomorrow. And you're tending to the field, and you're plucking out weeds. And like a faithful Jew, of course, you're praying for rain. And there's months of agony and pain and blister-inducing work. And then finally, the first nubs of the yield begin to sprout forth. You know, and every year, you're kind of hanging on a thread. You're dependent on this food to feed your family. Famine is a foreign word today, but in antiquity, Famine was a regular occurrence. You know, today they say because of the supply chains and the war in Ukraine, there are concerns that uh, fertilizer is going up and we may have some famine in some places in the upcoming year. But to us, this is, you know, thankfully a foreign concept. And we, of course, hope that it remains so. But if you were a farmer 2,500 years ago, famine is a very likely scenario every single year. And that means starvation, people could actually die. But not this year. This year, thank God, the fruits of your labor are sprouting forth. And finally, it's time to harvest. You're going to finally have some of the fruits, get to enjoy some of your hard labor. And we read verse, verse 9 and verse 10. The corner of the field... That goes to the poor, to the convert. The ears of wheat that fall out in the harvesting, you got to leave it. The underdeveloped grapes, don't touch them. The fallen grapes, these all must be abandoned for the poor and the less fortunate. Your instinct is to secure every bit of produce for yourself and your family. And who could blame you? This is what you worked for. You know, we we had, um, we made a barbecue yesterday. And I, I made some wings, wings. For, for my for my kids. And, you know, there, there's two kinds of kids when it comes to eating wings. You've seen this, right? First of all, I don't know how people even eat it because you get so messy and it's it's like a full contact sport to get any, any chicken off the bone. But there's two kinds of kids. You have one kid who, you know, takes the wing and tries to find like a lump of, of chicken and gives one bite to the accessible chicken and calls it a day, goes on to the next one. And they have the other kids and they gnaw and they nibble until all you have is just a bone. When you're a farmer and you're worried about, about famine, you're like the kid who eats or your instinct is to be like the kid who eats the wings all the way down to the bone. That's your instinct. And the Torah tells you, you have to curb your instinct. You have to think of the poor. And you can't say, oh, these they should just get a job. They should be useful. You know what? If you come help me plow the field, I'll pay you. Don't be a drag on society. Those are not legitimate thoughts. No. You leave it for them 
You go against your instinct. You have to develop gentle kindness and generosity and sweetness of, of character. You have to become like a saint. And who is this? We're talking about Mother Teresa or Rabbi Teresa or Rebetzin Teresa. Is this the one of the million who worked so hard has to just give it away? No. It's for every single member of our people. There's a new class of mitzvahs here. Superhuman mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that demand superhuman greatness. Fast forward a few verses. Verse 16. Lo seilech rachil ba'mecha. Don't spread gossip amongst your people. Don't speak any lashon hara. Don't speak any evil talk against another person. Don't say anything negative or harmful about another person. Unless, of course, there is a positive benefit. So, for example, someone says, hey, should I go into business with this guy? And you know he's a crook. And you know that he will, he'll steal all the money. And he's a total charlatan and a swindler. Then you must, you're required to reveal that to the person who's inquiring about that. But in general, you cannot say one negative or harmful word about someone else. If it's negative, even if it's not harmful, you can't say it. If it's harmful, even if it's not negative, you cannot say it. But it's true, you may say. Of course, of course it's true. It's only Lashon Hara if it is true. If not, it's 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 libel. It's, it's something else. It's called Motzi Shemra. And there are a myriad laws about this. For example, this is my favorite. You can't even give a compliment to someone if that's going to evoke someone who you're giving the compliment or, or you're revealing the compliment about, about person C to person B. If that person is going to say, well, he's not that great, then saying a compliment about person C is Lashon Hara. I think if you, you know, if you study conversations that happen, how much of our conversations are oriented around other people? There's that old line, great people discuss ideas. Average people discuss things. And small people discuss other people. But I think it's shocking the percentage of conversations that ordinary people have that revolve around other people. And very often, not in laudatory ways. This mitzvah is demanding for us to become extraordinary we have to become a saint in our conversations. We have to become superhuman and not say a single negative word about another person. And again, this is this is for everyone. This is not, you know, for the once in the generation, the generational sage. This is for everyone. Verse 18. Don't take revenge. Don't bear a grudge. Love your fellow as yourself. And Rashi, of course, tells us there are two different types of revenge. There is the revenge of getting back at someone. You didn't lend me your shovel. I'm not giving you my shovel. And there's a second kind of revenge, which is you point out your own personal virtue in opposition to what they did. You did this to me last week, but I'm not doing that to you. I'm better than you. Both of them are against Torah law in our Parsha. And remember, these are the people. They deserve it. They have it coming. And revenge is such a natural instinct, such a deep-seated, hardwired instinct to maintain a grudge. 
And I'm going to get my revenge if I have to wait 20 years. And there's a line in Jewish literature that it's, it's sweeter than honey to get revenge. But it's against the Torah. And again, this is the, this is the base for all Jews, not just the pious ones. And then we read about love your fellows yourself. Now I will say that I have two very juicy chapters on this in part two of my new book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp. So I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's a mitzvah, a commandment, an expectation of God, of you, to love your fellows yourself. And you have to speak positively about them. You have to be protective over their money, the Ram tells us, just like you're protective over your own money. You don't want to, you don't want to lose anything. You want to cover your downside and improve your upside. You have to do the same thing for your fellow. And just like you want your own honor, you have to be as careful and fastidious over the honor of your fellow. Again, are we describing a once in a generation saint? Or is this the expectation of every single one of us? The Torah is expecting us to become superhuman. I said a couple of weeks ago that God hates religion. You remember that? God hates religion. We don't have religion. This is not like dogmatic, ceremony, ritual. There's a requirement. There's an expectation of every Jew to become angelic, to overcome all the pettiness and all the smallness and all the bad instincts that we have and become someone special. That is the message of these mitzvahs become superhuman. They are superhuman expectations, but you know what? That's the expectation of you. And this we can say, perhaps, is the overarching message of the Torah. This is what it means that the majority of the corpus of the Torah is contained in this parasha. Not that it contains, you know, in volume, the majority of the mitzvos. It's fewer than 10%. But it contains the essence of what the Almighty wants us to become. What He commands us to become. What He expects of us to become to become a superhuman. Of course, this is a tall task. How is a regular person, an ordinary Joe, an ordinary Jane, how are we supposed to accept this? We're regular people. We're just, we're just regular people. We're not saints. We're not standouts spectacularly righteous and biased people. We're, we're just ordinary people, regular people. You know, we try to be good, try to do what's right, try to get a little a little better. But we're amidst, we got some bad stuff and good stuff, and generally we like to think of ourselves as, as good. But never confuse me with a saint. How do you sell this mythos? How do you convince the masses that this is what's expected of them? Everyone gets together. The entirety of this great nation, in all its glory, in all its splendor, in all its majesty, everyone comes together for this great monumental event. And Moshe's there. He's like the king of the nation. And Aaron's there, the holy, righteous, pious Aaron. And all the elders, and Joshua, and Caleb, and the sons of Aaron. Everyone's together. This is almost like a reenactment of Sinai. And we're all there together. We're all like this one unit. 
And we're told, remember who you are. You are a spiritual Navy SEAL. You're not ordinary. You're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You descend from the finest humans to ever live. You come from the choicest of humanity. This is your ancestry. This is your spiritual DNA. You have greatness, saintly greatness, coursing within you. You may not even be aware of it. But when you're part of this national awakening, everyone gets together to hear this, you remember the greatness and the power that you have within you. And when you realize the power and the splendor of this nation, then you can be emboldened to believe in yourself that you too have the capacity to become superhuman. Our nation went through a lot. Of course, we come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we also went through a very rigorous training regimen. Our nation went through several centuries of training. Of course, we come from the forefathers, but we spent hundreds of years refining ourselves to be the Almighty's representatives in this world. The whole Egyptian experience, 400 years in Egypt, that's what we're being trained to do. To separate ourselves from everyone else, we're a new class of humanity. We have capacity for being superhuman, and that can be expected of everyone. And we went to Sinai, and we experienced the most majestic and, and grand and significant event in all of human history. And for 40 years, we ate the manna, and we drank water out of a rock, this well inside a rock that followed us, and we saw the clouds of glory and a pillar of fire at night, and we had Moshe in our midst. Moshe whose luminescent face was brighter than the sun, he had to wear a mask, not blind us. We're not ordinary at all. Each one of us is a saint. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. Sometimes that just slips below our consciousness. We get together as one nation and we're reminded what kind of cloth we're really cut from. At Sinai, God said, this is Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, You will be to me a kingdom of priests. Everyone is a priest. Everyone is a saint. The base expectation of you is to be a priest. Kadosh, a holy nation. The whole nation is holy. Not just the select few. Of course, we don't take that too far. That was Korach's blunder. That's a subject for a different conversation. When we get together in this Hakel-like ceremony, we are reminded of the greatness that we all have within us. And in that setting, we recognize that we are a princely people. The standards of other people and other nations, they just don't apply to us. In this idea... It's not just helpful for them. You know, the, the Torah is still extant. The laws of the Torah still are still relevant to us. We are still bound by these mitzvahs that require superhuman greatness. The Almighty still expects all of this of us. 
we have to remember that we have within us. Every day when we pray multiple times, we say, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. Why is that important to remember? Why are we invoking these giants, these titans who founded our people? We are reminding ourselves, these are our ancestors, and we too are designated for greatness. The standard expectations of mediocrity, that is for other people. Let's get to this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready? Exquisite. Let's see if it indeed is exquisite. So first I want to follow up from last week. Last week we talked about my six-foot friend who prayed to become six feet. We got a lot of feedback about that. So thank you for sending in your feedback. As always, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. But I want to make two additions that I heard from two friends of mine. First of all, my friend David said, he wrote me in a text message, people think that Hashem is so distant, that God is so distant. He is just a whisper away. And that line, I'm like, wow, what a line. He is just a whisper away. God is just a whisper away. He said that, okay, I got to tell that to the podcast. I absolutely love it. This idea of of us doing prayer, of course, there's the canonized prayer, the Hebrew prayer that we do multiple times a day, but there's also the, the basic idea of prayer, man talking to man's creator. God is just a whisper away. I love that message. It's a wonderful idea to remember. That's the first thing I want to share with you. The second comes from our six-foot friend. I told him, I said, you told me that story. And I said it over the podcast. As a side note, you have to be very careful what you tell me because I may end up on the podcast. But don't worry, I will always protect your identity and confidentiality and anonymity. But I said, hey, give it a listen. So he listened to it. And then he told me that I heard from Charlie Harari every morning. He likes to have coffee with God. Just to chat with him. Chat with your creator. Discuss your day with him. I said, that's beautiful framing. I figured I'd share. But that was all last week. This week's exquisite insight, I heard from my torch colleague, Rabbi Yaakov Nadel. As an aside, he gives an incredible Daf Yomi podcast. And he also serves as the rabbi in one of the local shuls here in Houston. And it really relates to last week's parasha. This is the, the message that he conveyed in his sermon on Shabbos. But I really, I really liked it. It was just such a powerful idea that he said. And I figured, you know what? It's relating to last week's parsha, but it's exquisite. And I, I do feel like I have more liberty when it comes to this segment, the exquisite insight to go a little bit off script. It could be last week's parsha, but really, you know, we're clever enough to figure out a way to make it connect to this week's parsha. But I think it doesn't have to always be on the parsha. It could be a story about a six foot friend. Or it could be something that was mentioned by Rabbi Nadwal on last week's parsha. Plus, most of the listeners already dropped off. It's the end of the parsha. It's just me in the studio here at the Torch Center. You know, I have a colleague here who's uh, trying his hand at podcasts. And he tells me, you know, I really have a hard time, you know, when when you record in front of an audience – 
So it's much more of a natural setting. There's people in the room and there's energy and there's feedback and you can see their faces. If it's just me and a microphone, it feels, it feels so stale. There's no energy. There's no feedback. It's flat. It's awkward. It's stilted. So I gave him a suggestion. This is a little quirk. You know, we have this device called a Facebook portal. Do you know what that is? It's, it's like kind of like a video conferencing device. It's this really big, nice screen attached to this really nice base. And you could send videos to your grandmother on Facebook or whatever. You could also do Zoom calls, but it has this app called Photo Booth, which is just like for taking photos of yourself. And this is kind of facing the studio and the microphone in the studio, in the classroom at the Torch Center. So I said, what you should do is turn on the, the photo book. Don't take any videos or pictures of yourself, but you could see yourself like, like as a mirror in the, in the screen. So I said to him, I said, your brain, your brain can't tell a difference if there are just people in the room or people on the Zoom or it's just, a, it's just you gesticulating wildly in the torch center with the, with the video on the screen. Your amygdala just, just can't register the difference. I don't know if that's actually true, but it, it assumes, this is my theory. It assumes that you have an audience. So it's like kind of they say, you know, practice your speech in front of a mirror. Is it true? I don't know. And I don't even know why I'm telling you this. But if you're still listening, you must be one of my close friends. So I can share my little quirks with you. That's where I am right now in the Torch Center. I see myself in the photo booth app on this portal. And we're going to talk about the exquisite insight. Last week's parsha, Parsha's Achrimos, begins with the aftermath of the death of the sons of Aaron. The first verse of last week's parsha says, "With Hashem Moshe, God spoke to Moshe Achrimos after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they brought a sacrifice, Lifnei Hashem Bekarvasam Lifnei Hashem Musa, and they died." So if you read this verse, this is chapter 16, verse 1 of Leviticus, you'll notice it says that they died. It mentions that twice. Hashem spoke to Moshe after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they brought a sacrifice before Hashem, and they died. So why does it need to mention that they died twice? Why is that repeated? So the Das Zikani, one of the great commentators on the Torah, he says that they never got married. They died single. They were never married. And they had no children. And therefore, there was no continuity to them. And therefore, they died. They died not only once. They died twice. They died personally. They died. But they also died because they had no eternal legacy. There was no continuity. They had no children. And therefore, they truly died because they had no continuity. What an amazing idea. People, everyone dies, right? Everyone, I hate to break this to you. Everyone we're all mortal, and we die. Of course, we know that in Olam Abba, the soul is still alive, and the afterlife, that we know. But in this world, we're dead, right? Right? Wrong. If you die, but you have children, you have a legacy, and those children, they, they have your DNA, and they have your genetics, and they, they have your chromosomes, and they have your inspiration, and you invested in your children, you're still alive within them. It sounds like a very modern idea, but 
Here we have a source. In fact, I think that the Talmud actually says, if a Torah scholar dies, but they leave a child who's also a Torah scholar, then they really didn't die because the influence that they imparted upon their child is still living within them and therefore they're still alive in this world. Of course, in all Bob, the spiritual world, the soul, the soul doesn't die. But even in this world, if someone leaves a child, they are still alive here. But Nadav and Avil, they were never married and they had no children, and therefore they died, and they died, they died twice. What a what an amazing idea here from the Dasikanum. And he quotes a Midrash. This is another interesting idea. Why did they not get married? It's a mitzvah, after all, to get married, to procreate. Why did they not get married? So he quotes a Midrash. Listen to this. They didn't want to get married because any woman that they would marry would be a step down for them. These two were the, the two most eligible bachelors amongst the Jewish people. But they said, how, how can we marry anyone? You know, our uncle is Moshe. Our father is Aaron. The uncle from the other side is Nachshon, the, the prince of the tribe of Judah. And we two are the designated successors of Moshe and Aaron were the crown princes of the Jewish people. These two young men were, were absolute studs. Creme de la creme. The best, most eligible bachelors of the Jewish nation. Destined to replace Moshe and Aaron. And there were a lot of girls who would love to be considered as a prospective candidate to marry them. But every candidate was beneath them. Marriage to them would amount to settling. And they don't want to settle. So they stayed single. And how did that work out for them? Not so well. Because they ended up being way worse. They, they died single. And they, they didn't settle, but it's much worse because they left no legacy. And by the way, a little bit later on in the Torah, we find out that had they in fact had children and been married, they wouldn't have even died because there's reasons argued for this, but the Torah implies that had they had children, they would not have in fact made the mistake that they did. They wouldn't have entered the Holy of Holies with an unauthorized sacrifice and they would have survived. So two amazing ideas here featured in the Das Zikanim. Number one, that there's an incredible superpower, this ability to create another person, to create new babies. And it gives us, to a certain degree, it gives us immortality. And these people, they didn't have it, and therefore the death was final. And the second idea is the miscalculation that they made. They, rightfully, they said, how do we marry down? It's beneath us. And you know what? That's a good argument. Why should you settle? But long term, you are even worse off. Refusing to settle even an inch may leave you worse off. And that's why it's probably better to make a list of things that are deal breakers. On these things, I'm not going to settle. But to be flexible about other things, because look at another one of you, they ended up much worse than they would have had they settled. 
Now, of course, this is a dicey topic to speak about. And thank God most people stopped listening already a long time ago. But the reason why it's hard to speak about because, you know, of course, there are many couples that are plagued with infertility. This is a superpower, but it's not distributed equally. And therefore, this is a, a like a singularly painful situation. And one that the Almighty, the Almighty tested none other than the patriarchs and the matriarchs with this very difficult test. And of course, we don't know why the Almighty does what he does. I did actually buy an incredible book recently, authored by the Chavetz Chaim, called Shame Olam, which means a name for eternity based upon the verse in scripture. And it's talking about, the, the verse is talking about people who are infertile. And they feel like they have no legacy and no reason to live. And implied in that is that everyone feels a need. We all feel an innate need to have an eternal legacy for ourselves. And the book is about alternative ways to create eternal legacies, even if someone, God forbid, God forbid, is infertile. There are other ways to create an eternal legacy. So I want to make it clear, of course, I don't want to speak about something which is insensitive. And I apologize if I did not approach this subject with the requisite amount of sensitivity. You'll forgive me, I hope, if if I didn't do a good job on that. But I think another takeaway, if you are so fortunate that the money gave you the incredible gift of fertility, it's a superpower. And our sages tell us it can earn you a degree of eternal life even in this world. And of course, the second idea, think long-term, be willing to make short-term sacrifices in exchange for the long-term benefits. And that is a worthy trade-off in general, to think long-term, is always good advice. And that's what we do here at the Torch Center. In the Parsha Podcast, we like to give good advice. And I thank you for listening. And I hope you're having a marvelous day and the day gets even better. And I hope you're having a marvelous week and the week gets even better. And I hope you have an incredible, tremendous, peaceful, happy, joyous, stupendous Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. My email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. The book is called Upon a Ten-String Tarp. Please, God, by the time I speak to you next, either I'll have done, recorded the audiobook, or at least got a chunk of it done. Until next week. Oh, I love you so much. You take care. Incredible week. Rabbit will be at gmail.com.